honestly, uh, been overwhelmed with work as there's been over a 400% increase of cyber attacks uh, against the customers of VMware as well as the partners of VMware. And it's just a dramatic surge of criminality in cyberspace. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host, Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. We're living with the reality that most high-profile companies will get hacked. Not a question of if, but when. That's according to our guest, global cybersecurity expert, Tom Kellerman. Tom's joining us today on the heels of the release of VMware's most recent cyber threat report. It's packed full of prescient and disturbing data, the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. Tom's here to dive into the details of what's changed since he joined us last year in episode eight. There's some startling findings this year as a result of the pandemic. Thankfully, Tom also offers us some tips on how to keep those networks more secure. This is a great resource for anyone concerned about keeping their private data safe. Tom, welcome back. Happy to be back. It's good to hear your voice. Can you tell us about your current role in case people didn't listen to our last edition with you? I'm the head of cybersecurity strategy for VMware, and I'm also on the board for cybercrime investigations for the United States Secret Service. Fabulous. So look, I know last time we spoke, following that, Brian stripped out pretty much everything from his house and started again. And quite literally, given the pictures we've seen this week, he's got diggers in, digging up his, uh, his garden, his drive, his power lines and everything. So what have you been up to since we last talked? You know, I've been isolating, living out here in Colorado, trying to ski when I can, uh, mountain bike when I can. But honestly, I've been overwhelmed with work. There's been over a 400% increase of cyber attacks against the customers of VMware as well as the partners of VMware. And it's just a dramatic surge of criminality in cyberspace. Ouch. Okay, let's head on into our first section, which is our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. What's changed since last time? In security, in banking specifically, I think it's important to note that, you know, the financial institutions of the world, financial services firms, had to digitally transform rapidly uh, due to the pandemic. And in doing that, they undermined the effectiveness of their network security posture. And they lost a tremendous amount of visibility and control of the endpoints, uh, the laptops uh, that had been deployed to the field. And in that same event, you saw this massive migration of traditional organized crime online because of the lockdowns. Uh, Traditional crime uh, wasn't necessarily possible. And in such, you see this migration of criminality online to form these uh, significant, what I would call cybercrime cartels that have been hammering away at the financial sector, at the healthcare sector, and at Western government agencies for the past nine months. Oh, no, it's interesting that you also brought in healthcare there, because you would have thought through through the COVID time that that would be the bigger of the areas they'd be targeting. So what have you been seeing? In healthcare specifically, they've been targeting major hospitals and HMOs and vaccine makers with ransomware, because they know due to the pandemic, uh, due to the need to deliver health services and safety services that many of these entities will pay up or their insurers will pay up when they have cybersecurity insurance. So they're vulnerable, viable targets for extortion. In addition to that, with the TrickBot takedown where Microsoft and the U.S. government works to take down the massive botnet that was associated with election tampering or manipulation by the Russians, there was a 
a surge of Ryuk ransomware against U.S. hospitals is almost a, a payback as an escalation for the takedown of TrickBot. And so, yes, the healthcare sector, in fact, has been dealing with a secondary infection, their own cyber crime pandemic, and ransomware is to blame. So, you know, it would be remiss given recent incidents. What's your take on the, the situation with SolarWinds? You know, it didn't occur in a vacuum. SolarWinds is one of many instances where island hopping occurs. In fact, in this new study where I interviewed 126 CISOs from around the world and financial institutions, we noted that 38% of the time, FIs experienced island hopping, not just a question of, you know, their information supply chain being targeted to target them, but their own infrastructure being used to island hop or attack their constituency. And that manifests really in three different ways. It manifests when the network itself is commandeered. It manifests when the website or mobile application is commandeered, or it manifests in this new form of uh, what we call reverse business email compromise, where they take over the Microsoft O365 or exchange services and then leverage attacks from inside of your organization against your, your customers and your elite executives. Tom, can I just take you back for a moment? I'm sure there are new people listening to the podcast that perhaps didn't listen to the first one. I would advise them to go and listen to the first one so they can put up that fear and <laughs> fear fear of the unknown that I got last time. Um, can you explain to the listeners you know, what you mean by SolarWinds? Yes. Uh, so SolarWinds was the significant systemic attack against tens of thousands of companies and government agencies that was leveraged by the Russians. I'm not sure if it was the government or criminals. We don't know that yet. But the reality was it was leveraged against the Western world. And what they did is they targeted a device management software company and they polluted the update file of that company when it was delivering updates to its device management software to all of its users. And then in so much, they then delivered five to seven subsequent malware payloads. Uh, I question five to seven because some people don't consider them truly malware into those environments. And then they moved laterally within those environments and then took over the corporations and the government agencies that were vulnerable to those payloads and, and then used them to island hop. So it was probably the most widespread systemic act of, of cyber uh, crime or espionage in the history of the world. Wow. And obviously that's not stopped. Can you give some other significant examples where that's occurring again? Yeah, I'm not going to name companies or victims, but I would say that again, out of the 126 financial institutions that were interviewed as part of this modern bank heist report, 38% of them experienced island hopping. And I asked them to exclude solar winds if they were a victim of solar winds. So just from that sample set, this is much more widespread uh, than we can even imagine. And as we see in the news today about the need to harden Microsoft Exchange servers and the need to immediately deploy Microsoft's tool to remediate the infestation of Exchange servers, that's another example of this type of island hopping event or attack. Microsoft has done a good job of responding to that. But the real issue here is that nation states and cybercrime cartels are more than likely to use your infrastructure to island hop than they are just to extort you or ask you for ransom. So I think last time you suggested that supply chain or island hopping would be a major thing within the, the 12 months of our last report. So um, I guess that's proven out, right? Yeah, it's up. It's up. It's sad to say it's up. You know, last time we spoke of this phenomenon and the last time I, I issued this report, 
it was not as significant of a problem. But I think adversaries are well aware now that they have to transition the, the bank heist to a hostage situation to take advantage of the trust and confidence that customers place in institutions and use the digital transformation of that institution to attack their constituency. It just makes sense if you think about it from the criminal lens and the criminal conspiracy lens to not just burglarize an environment, but to burglarize it and then use the environment itself to attack their customers. So that's actually a bit interesting as well. So you say that the digital transformation and the impact of that. Now, you know, I think often when we're thinking about digital transformation, we're thinking, what's in it for the customer? How are we going to improve their experience? And I guess that's the point at which you've got to take a different approach to security and have that built in from the start rather than bolted on. Agreed. Intrinsically, the environment must suppress intrusions and criminality. The infrastructure, it must defend itself. And zero trust must extend beyond just endpoints and identity all the way into the fabric of the infrastructure as a whole. Because more than likely, the adversary already has a footprint, a backdoor, a passageway into the environment through some segment of your information supply chain. And I explicitly say information supply chain because it's not limited to merely technology companies and software providers. It extends to the outside general counsel, the outside PR and marketing firms as well, with whom you implicitly trust communications. Okay, that's from the outside in. And what's your observations around you know those companies that have really learned from the past 12 months and are really pushing the boundary positively to protect themselves? Yes, uh, proactive organizations begin with cyber threat hunting, essentially making sure that no one is in the bank vault when they close for the day. They're proactively looking for behavioral anomalies that exist across their infrastructure prior to digitally transforming or rolling out new capabilities. In addition to that, they're all about integrating networked security defenses with endpoint security defenses so that they have greater telemetry and they have greater visibility. Context is key to the threats that exist and persist uh, today. And then they have greater control over those environments. They have essentially endowed security capability and security visibility into traditional IT controls such that now the security team has the visibility and the capacity to harden traditional IT systems and controls. And IT administrators can provide a visibility and ground truth to the security team vis-a-vis threats they face in real time. That's been absent for many years, that seamless integration of threat intelligence as well as context and control. So look, following on from what Brian was just asking there then about threat hunting, if the adversary is already inside, what do you do to hunt them out? Well, you need to be quiet. You need to use silent alarms. You need to not have your guard dog bark or attack immediately. And you need to insulate yourself from further damage. As we mentioned earlier, you know, you see 118% of increase in destructive attacks. It's highly problematic. That shows that they're aware that you're onto them, you're being too loud, and they're going to destroy your infrastructure, manipulate the integrity of data, etc. So number one, when discussing an intrusion, set up secure communications channels. Do not use Slack or Teams to discuss an intrusion because they're omniscient. They see all communication. So use something like Signal or Wicker secure messaging app. Assume the adversary has multiple avenues to get back into your organization. And so don't immediately terminate the command and control that you identify or have your people do that because more than likely they have a second C2, a second secret passageway that sits on a sleep cycle that triggers when the first one's turned off. To combat you know, alert fatigue, given the phenomenon, you really have to baseline your organization and baseline behavioral anomalies before an event and after an event. Build the capacity to detect and respond across workloads 
as most of our data is moving through workloads now. And then segment personal and professional networks. They should have already been segmented, but make sure that they're segmented after the fact, just in case you left something or something was undiscovered in the environment. Now look, Carbon Black, which is the security BU of VMware, we have numerous webinars and tutorials on threat hunting best practices. We even issue certifications and we do so in concert with SAMS and then other organizations. But feel free to visit the Carbon Black subsection of VMware's website and have your teams review the threat hunting best practices webinars. So a couple of episodes ago, we uh, we met with Baskaya. And he made an interesting quote. He was saying there's two types of organization. There's those that know they've been impacted by a cyber incident and those that don't. But the reality is everybody's being impacted by these things. It's very prevalent. And looking at your key report findings, because I have uh, I took a sneak peek, hopefully we'll be published the report at around the same time as our podcast goes live. But it stagged me that 54% of those that you surveyed said they'd experienced destructive attacks. That's a crazy amount of people or of of firms that are recognizing now that they have been impacted. And that's a 118% increase from last year. That really highlights the punitive nature of these cyber crime cartels. Whether it's part of counter-incident response, where they realize that you've involved the police, they realize you're going after them, they've realized that you're disabling their backdoors in those systems, and so they decide to burn the environment down or to escalate the hostage situation, or whether that's because of geopolitical tension, I don't know. It's unbeknownst to me. But I will say that many of these cybercrime cartels exist with a pox mafioso with regimes where they live, and they're allowed to act with impunity so long as they don't target anything within that sovereign boundary, and they act out in a patriotic fashion when called upon. The other one that caught my eye as well was the statistic you had around the manipulation of timestamps. And timestamps, you know, that seems a very easy target because, you know, all of the compute that's out there is having to make sure it's accurate to time. So go hit the time server, right? Yeah, 41% of the time. 41% of these significant security personalities observe the manipulation of timestamps. But how many of these organizations didn't have the telemetry, didn't have the EDR capabilities in place to actually visualize or see that manifestation? And then when you think about the implications, not only from counter-incident response, right? Someone played with the timestamps associated with the CCTV footage, and so you're not really sure when that criminal was in that environment, when they broke into the vault, hypothetically. But more importantly, what about the manipulation of timestamps associated with trades? What about the manipulation of timestamps associated with transfers of funds given international liquidity? Next year, we really need to dig into this phenomenon. So the other one that kind of caught my eye from your report, and and it kind of was a little smile, really. So there's this huge task force operation to take out a fairly major, I don't know the bad guy's the right expression. Malware gang. There you go. Uh, The Emotet. I don't know if it's called Emotet, if I pronounced it right. And it was called Operation Ladybird. So go on, tell us some more about that. You know, you got to tip your hat to the Dutch police and their collaboration with Western law enforcement and the major telecommunications carriers, as well as cybersecurity vendors. Emotet was probably the most prolific malware family being deployed against the financial sector. Billions of dollars were lost to this gang, to this crew, and their infrastructure was essentially taken down. Now, they're coming back to life. Don't get me wrong. These people weren't like necessarily successfully all prosecuted and arrested and put behind bars. But the infrastructure for this 
malware family was taken down successfully. And this really highlights, I think, a distinction between certain law enforcement communities. So I'll give you an example. So the Dutch, the Estonians, the Ukrainians, they're allowed to hack back. They're allowed to hack the dark web infrastructure of these cybercrime cartels versus, you know, the British, the French, the U.S. as examples. They don't allow that because it violates their own computer crime laws. It just shows a more aggressive posture in, in some parts of the world. But truly tip my hat to the Dutch law enforcement community and their efforts to collaborate and take down Emotet. Emotet was responsible for, I would say, probably 41 to 42 percent of significant uh, wire transfer fraud and heists in the financial sector last year. Tom, you've talked about some legal and lawful retaliatory actions against these groups and communities of people. What's your insight onto where these people are, are being based from? You know, any particular regions or countries? The most prolific cybercrime crews and cartels exist in the former Soviet bloc. They're all Russian speaking. And the North Koreans have become quite prolific of late, thanks to technology transfer from their Russian speaking partners. But yeah, the most concerning is the former Soviet bloc. Those nation states, you know, that typically have mediocre economies who are struggling, but yet are quickly adopting technology. And many individuals are realizing that there's no point getting a real job when you can hack and money's virtual. I think we've said that one before. Yeah, VMware doesn't stand for virtual moneyware. <laughs> Does it not? <laughs> I think what's most interesting in the study is a question that I've never asked before. A question that I decided to ask, and I really didn't imagine such a candid response, but I asked 126 of those, essentially, how many of you have experienced attacks that targeted market strategies and non-public market information? And more than half said that they've seen that. And that is very troubling. If you think about the evolution of front-running and digital or insider trading and how that can be digitized, we must be very concerned. Much more attention needs to be paid to this phenomenon. So with that in mind, Tom, and again, not wishing to shine a light on any particular financial services organizations, what do you see as the best practice around threats? You know, What's the best practice around hunting for those threats in, in financial services firms? What are you seeing as a, an evolving set of standards or playbooks to address that? You know, first and foremost, all of the laptops being used by portfolio managers and anyone who has access to the market strategies of the institution in advance must have endpoint detection response capabilities deployed on them. They also should be limited privileges to be least privileged should be en enacted and just in time administration should be enacted such that no one has essentially keys to the castle from there. Those same devices should be segmented from the majority of the network such that no uh, spread of disease per se or malware can get to them very easily. And frankly, uh, hardening immediate vulnerability management, rapid vulnerability management must be deployed on those devices given that we're seeing a resurgence of exploits and exploit kits over the last nine months. What that really means is, you know, when you get those critical updates, let's say on Tuesday nights from your major software vendors and you choose not to use those critical updates, those critical updates are like steel plates on secret passageways that have been built in the dark web to tunnel into your computer. And exploits are a way of exploiting those vulnerabilities prior to those steel plates being released. Okay. So look, we didn't cover it last time. And on our podcast, we try and avoid being like, you know, heavy into... So what does VMware do? But, you know, what does VMware do in this space? VMware is now heavily invested and committed to the construct of vigilant digital transformation. 
And through their acquisition of Carbon Black, which was a significant large cybersecurity company that was based in Boston, they've integrated the detection, response, and hardening capabilities of Carbon Black into the fabric of VMware. So vSphere now has advanced workload security, and, and you're seeing a Workspace One that now has detection response capabilities that can be auto-provisioned and turned on. And you see Horizon, where it can deploy secure clones now, and then a heavy investment into uh, Kubernetes and container security as well. But Carbon Black was known for pioneering the use of behavioral anomaly detection for detection and response across attack phenomenon. And that capability has now been embedded into the fabric of VMware. You just need to turn it on. As simple as that. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of don't believe you. God, there's got to be more to it. (laughs) No, just ask whoever your account representative is about the constructs. If you're a vSphere customer, ask about workload security. If you're a Horizon customer, ask about secure clones. If you're a Workspace One customer, ask about auto-provisioning the Carbon Black Cloud in that environment. And then the Carbon Black Cloud itself is really cutting edge as it relates to uh, dealing with these types of advanced threats. It doesn't just provide prevention because 100% prevention is impossible, but it also gives you the added benefits of detection and response for when your perimeter fails. What I don't like about that expression is when, not if. It's when, look, if you're a significant financial institution and you're proud of your brand and your history, you'll be targeted by the most sophisticated and organized cybercrime cartels in the world. And they only have to be right once. Tom, you get the opportunity to talk to our clients and talk to the industry broadly in terms of technology and across all different industries. What has caught your eye that's improved that you think that's actually a good idea that's made a move forwards? 2020 was a wake-up call for all of us when it comes to safety and security. I think that it was a dramatic year in general for most organizations as they dealt with cybercrime cartels, but it was an amazing historic year for the empowerment of the chief information security officer position and role. And as evidenced by the studies, given this is the fourth year, more organizations are conducting threat hunting and more of them are conducting threat hunts on a weekly basis than ever before. And more organizations have elevated and promoted their CISOs to report directly to the CEOs. And more organizations are planning to invest greater amounts of fund in cybersecurity this coming year. Approximately, the majority of organizations will invest between 10 and 20% more in cybersecurity in 2021 than last year. So yes, there was a reckoning. We're turning the, the corner, but we're still dealing with an adversary that has backdoors and access to systems. And worst case scenario is not about the burglary of the, the bank. It's really about that hostage situation and that island hop and that destructive attack. So what do the regulators take on this report? Because obviously you go talk with them and advise the regulators around the world. What do they make of this? Well, you know, I was uh, honored last year to be invited to the FFIEC, which was a combination of financial regulators here in the U.S.'s examination summit to keynote on this report. And uh, that was an honor. None of the regulators have seen the results of this report yet. This report is going to be released in April. They will get an advanced copy about a week before we go public. And we'll see. I'm hoping that at a minimum, the regulators do two things. One, they advocate and mandate that chief information security officers report directly to the CEOs just to change the governance challenge. And two, I'm hoping that they mandate weekly threat hunting to occur across all institutions. And then finally, I think they need to have a reporting requirement for the advent of destructive attacks. 
And that mandating of weekly threat hunts, is that inside each institution or is that across all? You know, how much collaboration is there in there in that kind of threat hunting? Usually it's fairly private because it's like going through someone's underwear drawer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, no, it should be occurring, I think, on a weekly basis within organizations. CISOs need to be promoted and elevated immediately. And then destructive attacks and the advent of a destructive attack must be reported. Right now, there are no reporting requirements for the advent of a destructive attack. Tom, I, I, was, I was about to ask you a question. If you was a regulator, what are the, you know, the one, two, and three things that you would do? But you've actually got ahead of me there on in terms of what you've just intimated. I guess the other question then is, if you were now sitting in any organization, you know, a financial services organization or any organization as a CISO, what would you be advising your CEO? Well, that CISO requires greater budget and greater authorities and the capacity to say no and veto anything that comes out of, of these CIOs department that could expand the attack surface. As illustrated in the report, the investment priorities of CISOs this coming year are going to be XDR, extended detection response, contextual threat intelligence, and uh, workload security, followed by container security. And so a CISO necessitate budget to roll those out, and they're going to need personnel. And frankly, there's a shortage of cybersecurity professionals. So there needs to be a program created within these institutions to train IT system administrators to become cybersecurity professionals and allow them a career migration path to go on the defensive side of the ball. Well, yes, indeed, indeed. So, Tom, what's your day job look like? I wake up at 6 a.m. I review threat intelligence while working out in the gym. <laughs> I Yeah, I do the same. <laughs> I, I then uh, go visit some of my favorite industry publications like darkreading.com and others uh, to see the latest stories on attacks and countermeasures. And then typically around 7.30 a.m., I have a call with a strategic forward threat research team that's run by Greg Foss, and we discuss events uh, that keep us up at night and how we can best secure both VMware's environment and customers, um, but the larger partner ecosystem as a whole. And then, you know, it's typically like everyone else, I've got, you know, five or six Zoom meetings a day. And then between that, I just try to learn and read as much as I can because the challenge in cybersecurity is just keeping up. No one's a true expert in any one dimension of cybersecurity. You've got people that are experts on networks. You've got people that are experts on applications. You've got people that are experts on containers uh, from a development perspective. And in the same vein, you have these same experts divided by uh, expertise and attacking those environments. I'm trying to work out if I could actually read and do anything in the gym at the same time. And I've decided <laughs> I can't. <laughs> You got to do a stationary bike, and then you got to take <laughs> you got to take breaks between your sets and the weights. I, I I think I think he's struggling really with the breathing and doing the gym at the same time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, you know how to how to read something and digest something when you're sounding like Darth Vader with asthma. That would probably be me. <laughs> so uh, let's go into our crystal ball section now. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. So, look, last time you gave a scary prediction about island hopping and the impact that could have on financial services, and that came true. So, what do you see happening next? And I'm kind of afraid to ask. I'm very concerned, and I hope I'm wrong, that a major public cloud will be commandeered by a cybercrime cartel 
And that environment will be used to not only attack their customers, but when there is a response, a collective response from the public cloud and the government to eradicate the footprint of the adversary, that same public cloud will begin to issue, uh, deploy destructive malware and destructive attacks against all members of that community. So that's pretty serious stuff. What can you do to protect against that? Look, not all clouds are equal. Not all clouds are as secure as they should be. Frankly, hybrid cloud computing is more secure um, than public cloud. Fact. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I did. When it comes to public cloud security, though, in general, workload security and assuring that you have best of breed workload security is an imperative, as well as obviously having the capacity to secure and protect containers as they represent the future of the environment. And that, that is something that we've invested heavily in here at VMware. And uh, we are continuing to uh, move that ball forward and try to evolve. Well, I'm just thinking solid state's making a comeback. I guess that's part of the problem, though, isn't it? There's just so much data now. How do you back it all up? Actually, last time, though, you said, yeah, don't worry about that because the criminals went for the backup first, right? They do now. The ransomware gangs, because everyone knows that the way that you defeat ransomware is you just let it ransom and then you back it up from the backups. They target the backups first. They don't actually encrypt anything. Then they move laterally from the backup systems throughout the organization. They take any kind of sensitive information that's there, and then they lock you up. And the reason why they do that, they want double extortion. What I mean by that is they come after you a second time saying that they're going to dox you or release your sensitive documents to the press and to the public. And many times they actually know who your regulator is and they, they threaten you with releasing that to your regulator. Wow, there is so, so much to think about. So look, last time we talked, you left us with, well, with, mostly with Brian, but having to completely reconfigure his home network. I referred to that episode as the scariest episode we did. We'd love to invite you to our lightning round now and maybe uh, lift the tone a tiny bit and get to know you a little bit more, Tom. So if that's okay, we'll head into our lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. Okay, so go on then. What's your favorite book or movie? My favorite book is uh, Red Rising. It's a book based on science fiction, counterinsurgency in space, and it's mandatory reading material for all CIA case officers and four-star uh, generals in the military. You know, I bought that book last time we spoke because you told us about it then, but I haven't got around to reading it. That's the second time you've mentioned it. I'm going to have to read that now. You didn't have enough time during the pandemic to read it. <laughs> <laughs> you've been okay, getting out. Thank you for that. Had an excuse. He was fixing his whole house and yard. You didn't do it. <laughs> right. Okay, my go, Tom. First concert, live concert you saw? Actually, it was Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd in D.C. What's your favorite one-day getaway location? Oh, for sure. It's uh, Beaver Creek, Colorado. Either summertime or winter. Winter, you can ski. Summertime, you can mountain bike. And it's just gorgeous. Tom, when was the last time you used cash? And what did you use it to buy? So pre-COVID, I used cash all the time because I didn't like to be tracked through the credit card expenditures. <laughs> Post-COVID, now I'm using Apple Pay. <laughs> at, a, at a minimum, that rotates my number. I probably used it for a couple pints of beer. What are you most excited about for the future of financial services or tech? And I guess when we say excited about, we mean in a positive way. I am most excited about financial institutions differentiating themselves from others specific to the level of security and privacy they provide, much like the Swiss banks did very effectively in the 19th century. I am hoping that 
institutions realize that for differentiation and comparative advantage, that if they're more serious about cybersecurity, they're more likely to get clients like myself. What's your um, favorite gadget or piece of technology? Uh, I think the new iPhone is fantastic. I think I'm most reliant on, on that experientially. Some of the other technologies I'm, I'm very concerned about just because of the presence of digital assistants and smart assistants that are always on. And so I don't actually embrace those. I thought I was going to embrace virtual reality and augmented reality for a while there, but I realized I missed the real world too much during COVID. Should a car have a name? And if so, what have you named yours? It should have a name and it should be a woman's name. And my, my car is named Aya from Game of Thrones, the little assassin. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. okay so, the, so the next question is, obviously, is it a petite car that carries a blade? No. Um, so... What was your first car and what car do you drive now? My first car was a used Honda Civic white and my stereo system was worth more than the car. And that was back in college and I was a DJ and I used to spin hip hop. So the car had to have a good system. Now I'm, I'm rolling around in a, in a Benz SUV AMG, something that I can use for a getaway as well as something I can pick up to the mountains. So a bit more personal then. So who's your mentor or who have you been most inspired by? My mentor, there's two of them. First, there is Dave Thomas, who was the original special agent in charge of cybercrime investigations and intrusions for the FBI. He stood up the original program in the 90s, the first ever program for cyber intrusion investigations. Brilliant man. And my second is Tony Sager, who people often refer to as Yoda. He was the original person behind information assurance at the National Security Agency. Japanese-American, brilliant man. And uh, yeah, those are my two mentors. Okay, Tom, you've obviously traveled a great deal in work. And what's your favorite place you've traveled to? Exotic or business? Both. There you go. You can give us both. You know, Singapore is an amazing place, as is London. But from a relaxation perspective, I love Costa Rica. Costa Rica is one of the, is one of the few places that I've been to on the planet that I didn't want to go home. Oh, interesting. Highly recommend it. What's your favorite musical instrument and why? My favorite musical instrument is probably the guitar, but I can't play it, but my brother can. And I just think what it's done for, for modern alternative music is phenomenal. And I, and I adore it. You can invite any person dead or alive for dinner. Who would you invite? <laughs> Seth Myers from The Late Show. Very funny comedian. He makes me laugh. Whoever I invite has to be funny. Uh, so um, what piece of career advice do you wish you'd given your younger self? Don't jump around so much. You know, it's not about the money. It's about the legacy. Really focus, build relationships. I think one of the challenges I have with many of my protégés right now in cyber is that they change jobs every two two years just for a bigger paycheck, not realizing what they're leaving on the table and the political relationships and, and the friendships they're leaving behind just for quicker cash. So this is probably the most important question. And um, I just I'll jump in because I'm really behind the scenes. The rest of our team said, I really have to ask you this, Tom. <laughs> if you were an ice cream, what flavor would you be? <laughs> chocolate, dark chocolate. With a waffle cone. Getting specific now. Fair. So it was going to have to be dark, yeah, right? Very dark. <laughs> yeah, very dark. My last question, Tom. Your favorite karaoke song to either clear the room or take the room with you. Which one is it? Wild Thing. Wild Thing. 
I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I have seen that, but I could see that. <laughs> no, I look forward to it. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, we wanted to try and just like, you know, lighten things up uh, at the end. Uh, you've really, uh, you've been a great sport. Thank you. We're happy to. Thanks for the opportunity today. Tom, f- thank you very much for uh, you know, a hugely informative and entertaining conversation, much like last time. As Matthew has inferred, after our last call, I unpicked all my home network, doorbell, you name it, as a result of the conversation. This time, I'm actually knocking the house down. So um, I'll, I'll dig the foundations and trenches a little deeper and wider. Thank you for today. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. To keep up with all the latest trends and tricks in cybersecurity, the best way is to follow Tom on Twitter. That's T-A-K-E-L-L-E-R-M-A-N-N, T.A. Kellerman. Or you can connect with him on his LinkedIn page. You should also check out the Carbon Black Howlers, where Tom is very active. We'll have all the links in our show notes. If we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Owen or the podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And you can also find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. Also, if you have ideas for future episodes or wish to appear as a guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.